there are two tales waiting for you, told one after the other by an odd set of two. So prepare yourself, dear one, because this is Drops of Darkness. I am Stranger, and I tell only fantasies. Whenever your world has a grip on your throat, I am there, waiting to unleash the monsters that sleep in my mind so that they may remind you that you have sharp teeth and claws of your own. Gods often die slowly. Somewhere down the line, worship turns to myth, and then myth turns to bedtime stories. There is power in stories, but the type reserved mostly for the teller and the listener, leaving only scraps for the deities who were once used to feasting on reverence and devotion. At a certain point, it becomes not enough. The birthing of new gods ceased, and the old ones had to find their sustenance in human ways. Food and lust were the first and the most obvious, but then followed drugs and adrenaline and then fear. For most, their newly fragile bodies did not survive long enough to see these cravings fully satiated. When Zeus himself finally fled the crumbling ruins of Olympus, he was the only one left, and knowing that there were no eyes to witness his descent, he wasted none of his waning energy on a great show of mightiness. He saved it for his frantic effort of survival, and even that he could barely manage. The king of the gods fell hard, but out of all the Olympians, he had tasted the pleasures of the mortal world most, and as weak as he was, it did not take him long to rediscover his favorite consumptions. With Hera long gone, she was even less of a thought in Zeus's mind as when he was immortal, and he found himself between a new pair of legs any time the chance came about, which was often. He might have been barely more than mortal at this point, but Zeus had countless lifetimes of practice in getting exactly what he wanted. But as he soon began to discover, that's not what mattered most in this world. The world of humans is a cruel, unforgiving place. And while Zeus had tasted frustration, pain, and anger before as a full god, it was nothing compared to how it feels when the world holds the power over you instead and he often forgot his new role in this world, his new place in the chain. What humans had that he did not was practice in living despite the horrors. They expected it in ways that none of the gods, save perhaps Hades, could possibly fathom. And what's worse is that the darkest, most vile lashes of cruelty came from the hands of other humans with their own ideas of how best to survive. One night, Zeus didn't notice the slight spin in his vision after downing the drink with the half-dissolved pill at the bottom of the glass. He had another, and then another, and with each burning shot he knocked down his throat, he forgot more and more about the empty and desolate Olympus. And all he wanted was something to end the emptiness and desolation within himself. The rest of that night came in flashes, mere glimpses of what all occurred on the outside of his consciousness as he felt his flesh exchange hands in the darkness. Some of them were gentle as they invaded, while others brought only pain. 
There were laughs, some whispers, and tears that may or may not have been his own. When he awoke in his own bed, he was surprised to find himself in a familiar place. At first he was relieved, but then came dread, as he wondered who, in his delirium, he had let into his private domain. He rose to investigate, but the world quickly resumed its spinning. There was something else, though, beneath the intoxication that drew his attention. He followed the fevering heat and soreness until he found an inflamed image tattooed in the skin of his ribs. He could see that it was large, whatever it was, but that was it at that angle. With his heartbeat thudding throughout his whole body, Zeus lifted himself up from his freshly stained bed and crossed through the chaos that had been left in the wake of his guests now long gone. He padded the bathroom wall until he found the switches, and in an instant, white light cut into his eyes like daggers. While squinting, he lifted his ruined shirt and began to decode the bloody scribbles. There was a skull at the center, with crudely drawn bolts of lightning coming out both its eyes. Surrounding it might have been laurels, or possibly snakes. It was hard to tell if it had been scales or leaves that had been tattooed by an unsteady hand. Zeus wasn't concerned as much about the image as he was about the fact that it did not seem to be fading. He might not have been what he once was, but there was enough golden ichor left in his blood to allow him to heal quicker than any pure mortal. Despite this, the skin around the tattoo grew angrier, and when he pressed a finger against it, he found the surface slick with a clear yellowish liquid that bubbled up from the jagged lines. Cranking the tap... Zeus drenched the skin with hot water and scrubbed at the tattoo. The top layer slid off in his hand, revealing more of the growing infection that was spreading under his flesh. The fever had grown in just those few moments, encasing his eyes in stinging heat and sending chills throughout his weak body. Fire in my name. Blood spilled to my glory, that's all I want, said Zeus as sickness overtook him. The tattooed skin on his side was now bleeding fully, but it was not red. It was pure gold. The traces of god blood had been drawn out from his veins, leaving the rest of his body fully and painfully human. The thick, sticky ichor drenched the raw flesh, coating the tattoo in its entirety, draining him of the last of his power. Not yet, he whispered. Not like this. As he felt himself fall to the floor, Zeus grabbed the straight razor that laid next to the sink, but it slipped from his slick, shaking hands and clattered against the bathroom floor. He dropped hard on his knees, and as he swayed against the incoming darkness, he heard a voice. Father, it said, set me free. He felt a squirming begin between his skin and his ribs. Something wet pressed up against the black lines, and it pushed itself against them until they began to split. Zeus felt pain as a true mortal then, and his throat threatened to tear from the sound that ripped through it. Finally, between the waves of sickness and agony, Zeus found what he was looking for. The razor slid free from its handle with ease, and it sliced through his skin even easier. He wasted no time on clean strokes. He just cut until he hit bone. When the blade slipped from his hand, there were two sighs of relief. Thank you, father, the voice said. 
Who are you? asked Zeus, cooling his head against the cold floor. Tipota, I am nothing. And you have nothing to fear. The red, black, and gold-colored flesh on the floor continued to squirm until the pieces came together, pressing themselves inward and rolling until they were smooth. A new god, Zeus whispered. Finally, maybe our time isn't finished after all. Tell me, he said between shaking breaths. What, my child, are you the deity of? The mass of ink, ichor, and flesh churned until its body took shape, and the thin figure rose to its feet. Zeus then watched as his offspring knelt by him, and he looked into the black eyes of his child and saw the answer before it was spoken. I am of endings. Both humans and gods have been building this world as my altar and I have finally risen to claim the eons of sacrifice and worship ingrained in its earth and its bones. Black lines twisted and stretched under the new god's skin, telling stories of things Zeus knew he would not live to see come to pass. A fire in your name, said nothing as flame formed in his hand. With his other, he picked up the razor. Blood, Spilled to your glory that made me. With one cut, nothing consumed his first ending, and with the fire he set about his work, remaking his new world. Hello everyone. In between stories, we like to highlight a cause that is worth our collective attention. For October and Indigenous Peoples Day, we decided to highlight the Native Organizers Alliance. This is a nonprofit dedicated to empowering Indigenous voices and fostering positive change. You can find out more and donate at nativeorganizing.org or from the link on our website at dropsofdarkness.com. Now, back into the shadows we go. I am someone and I tell only truth. Whenever something slithers through the barrier between worlds, I am there. Not to stop them, but to watch them and remind you of the countless terrors your kind has survived all on their own. My family moved to the rural Midwest when I was a kid. Our closest neighbor was miles away on either side, and all around our house was abandoned, overgrown soy fields with only a strip of trees off in the distance. Pretty boring for myself and my older brother. So you can imagine how interested we were when we found an old set of train tracks sunk into a deep gully at the edge of our property. We lived there for a couple of weeks at that point and both agreed that we'd never heard a train go by. That plus the fact that the whole area was abandoned fields led us to the conclusion that it was perfectly safe to climb down and explore. There was an easy way down and at least 10 to 15 feet of space on either side of the tracks, so even if a train did come by, we'd be fine. After about 10 minutes, we checked out everything in that little section and decided to see what was around the bend. We started walking and when we made it around the curve of the tracks, 
we saw rows and rows of huge willows that grew out over the edge of the gully, along with curtains of vines that made it look like green waterfalls on either side. After weeks of staring at brownish, half-dead soy fields, seeing this was incredible. We kept walking, checking out every weird tangle of roots, and even found a few animal bones that we almost took home, but ultimately decided that they were probably better off where they were. There was so much to look at that we weren't paying attention to how narrow it was getting, or how far we had gone, until a voice called out from behind us. My brother heard it before me, and I remember seeing the look on his face as he realized that there was barely any space on either side of the tracks anymore. He told me we should play a climbing game and see who could get to the top the fastest, which I remember thinking was strange because he never suggested we race each other. He was eight years older than me, so there wasn't much of a competition there. He tried to grab onto some of the vines to test that they were strong enough to climb up, but they just came out by the roots from the loose dirt. Then the voice called out again, this time loud enough that we both heard it. I'm not sure if it was saying anything or if it was just yelling at us for being somewhere we shouldn't. It was coming from behind us, so as much as we wanted to turn back towards where we came, that option was suddenly very unappealing. And then it became out of the question when we heard a rumble building from around the bend. There was a train coming, and there was no extra space on either side of the tracks. I looked at him to see what we should do, and I remember all the color being gone from his face. He had no idea what was ahead of us if we chose to run forward, and he had no idea if we had enough time to make it back to where it would be safe before the train came. I'm sure that wasn't the first time I saw my brother terrified, but I do remember that being the first time it ever showed. But then he just smiled, told me I was going to climb, and assured me it'll be fine because I was a lot smaller than he was and that he'd give me a boost. I thought his plan was for me to make it up and then I could help lift him up, but I realized later that I was too small to have been able to reach back for him or pull him up even if I had been able to get to him. He wasn't planning on getting out, and either way, it didn't matter because even though I was smaller, the dirt just crumbled in my hands anyway. And then we heard the voice for the third time, and this time, it came from right next to us. It said, Run. I'm not sure what made my brother decide to run forward instead of back, but when he grabbed my hand and I started to run, I didn't question it. After a minute or two, the tracks finally turned into a straightaway, and then maybe a thousand feet in front of us was a bridge. I think that was the fastest I'd run in my entire childhood, possibly my entire life. It had some crisscrossing support beams, and when we got to it, I was able to climb up on my own after my brother gave me a boost, and then he was able to jump and pull himself up. We made it to the top just in time to sit there with our feet hanging over the edge and watch the train thunder down the tracks underneath us, with maybe a foot and a half of clearance on either side. I don't know who or what that voice belonged to, but if it wasn't for being told to run, we wouldn't have made it out of there. At least, not both of us. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Drops of Darkness. 
which is written, voiced, and produced by Anodyne Vaughn and Cameron Helquaik. If you enjoyed your drift into the shadows, help keep the stories alive by sharing the show, leaving a review, and if you really want to earn the favor of these dark storytellers, tether yourself to their world by tapping subscribe. If you have a true paranormal story of your own that you'd like to be read by someone, you can make the offering to submissions at dropsofdarkness.com or through the form on our website. Until next time, dear one, and remember, when the darkness looks your way, hold its gate.